everybody, and this is Gerard Fox of The Verdict Is In. And I want you to know that, you know, my new thing is I don't believe anyone should listen to corporations, politicians, or the media because they feed us pablum. It's not straight truth or knowledge or power. It is it is just their idea of what we should be thinking. We should think for ourselves. And I want us all to know that knowledge is power. That is straight, unadulterated knowledge. And this podcast is to bring you that knowledge and it is to bring it to you regardless of your economic strata, your political party, your race. You know, you were born in this earth, a beautiful soul. And for those people in the inner city, I want you to know that I want you to eat up knowledge because knowledge is how you get ahead. Not someone else's version of knowledge, actual knowledge. Many of you know that I believe that the United States of America cannot hold its head up high until it fixes the inner city and provides a safe environment with good education, healthy food, and and it is not acceptable to say it's just that way. I have on the show, and I promise you great guests, a man I have admired since I read his book. I have Gregory Boyle, who's the founder of Homeboy Industries in Los Angeles, the largest gang intervention rehabilitation and reentry program in the world, a native Angelino and Jesuit priest from 1986 to 1992. Father Boyle served as pastor of Dolores Mission Church in Boyle Heights, then the poorest Catholic parish in Los Angeles, but also had the highest concentration of gang activity in the city. Father Boyle witnessed the devastating impact of gang violence on his community during the so-called decade of death. That began in the late 1980s and peaked at 1,000 gang-related killings in 1992. I want to stop there for a second. If you're born into a place where your father's already in prison, your mother has three jobs, and she gets raped on her way to your house because the lighting's horrible, there's no security, you join a gang for safety. But you may be dead at 19. And we're fellow citizens, and, and we don't do anything to stop it or to ameliorate it, most of us, Father Boyle has. And so you should stop and listen. This is very important. Important for the souls and the people who are human beings who believe the same blood we do, who are subjected to this. In 1988, Father Boyle started what would eventually become Homeboy Industries, which employs and trains former gang members in a range of social enterprises, as well as provides critical services to thousands of men and women who walk through its door every year seeking a better life. Remember, we had Jonathan Blair on, um, who's a phenomenal person who said we all deserve a better life. Father Boyle is the author of the 2010 New York Times bestseller, Tattoos on the Heart, The Power of Boundless Compassion. Compassion's very important for us to have, and there's not enough in this world today. His new book, um, Barking to the Choir, The Power of Radical Kinship, was published in 2017. He has received the California Peace Prize and had been inducted into the California Hall of Fame. In 2014, President Obama named Father Boyle a champion of change. He received the University of Notre Dame's 2017 Latari Medal, the oldest honor given to American Catholics. Currently, he serves as a committee member of California Governor Newsom's Economic Job Recovery Task Force in response to COVID-19. I should just say that that is amazing. Now, Father Boyle, can I call you Father Boyle? You can call me anything. You can call me Greg if you want. Okay, Greg. What caused you to come up with the concept for homeboy industries. Let's start there. 
Well, I didn't really come up with any concept. I mean, I was always responding for one thing, you know. So it began. we began a school because there were so many uh, junior high, middle school age gang members who had been given the boot from their homeschool. Nobody wanted them. So they were wreaking havoc in the projects. They were writing on walls. They were selling drugs. They were violent. So I walked out to them. I said, hey, if I found a school that would take you, would would you come? And they said, yeah, I'd go to a school if you could find one. And then I couldn't find one. So I had to start one. So then they all gathered, came to the church, and then they said, if only we had jobs. So then, you know, we started kind of a job uh, trying to find felony-friendly employers, and then we couldn't find enough. So then we started Homeboy Bakery, so like that. So I never I never kind of thunk the whole thing up at any point. It was just, uh, you know, evolving and until, uh, you know, we are now the largest in the world. Now, God bless you for that. You know, a lot of people who don't really ever go into the inner city nor afraid to go into the inner city really would be afraid of a gang member and they believe that they're kind of lost souls for good, you know, that they just sell drugs, shoot bullets and create havoc. I've never felt that way at all. In fact, I know that they're just human beings adapting to their environment as best they can. How do you go about getting a gang member to want to have a job, want to have an education, and to you know rehabilitate is almost not the word I'm going to avoid using, see opportunity and act on it and change their life? How do you do that? Uh, we don't. I mean... We kind of avoid doing that, you know, because it's we don't coax or coerce or convince or go to a street corner and hand out flyers. There are 120,000 gang members in L.A. County, and every single one knows where we are, who we are and what we do. So they have to freely choose to walk through our doors when they do. What do you think causes, based on talking to the people who do walk through your door, what causes a gang member to decide that, you know, hey, I want to check out Homeboy Industries and maybe get a job and and see what I can do differently? Well, it's because it's basically a recovery program. So in the same way, you know, someone would be addicted to drugs, you know, somebody is addicted to gangs in a sense. So in recovery, they always say it takes what it takes, you know, for a gang member, you know, death of a friend, a birth of a son, a long stretch in prison. It takes what it takes for somebody to kind of wake up. Then they walk through the door and they can be in varying degrees of readiness. So but they come in and they're welcomed and helped. And it's a safe place, you know, a place where people can repair, you know, what is damaged and, uh, Psychologists would call it attachment repair. So they come in with a disorganized attachment. Mom was frightened or frightening, and you can't calm yourself down if you've never been soothed. So um, so if it's true, as I believe it is, that the traumatized are, are likely to find their way to traumatizing others, it's equally true that the cherished will be able to find their way to the joy there is in cherishing themselves and others. So that's kind of what we, we provide. It's a place where you're held and cherished. And so you can 
you know, discover the truth of who you are. And can you tell us, you know, without using names, some moving success stories, someone who came in, what they're doing today, the transition they made, how they made it? Yeah, you know, I don't really tell success stories, A, because I don't believe in success. And, you know, I believe what Mother Teresa says, that we're not called to be successful, we're called to be faithful. If people if people want stories, you know, I always say, I go to my book. You know, I mean, it, sometimes people will, like yourself, will ask me a question that'll trigger a story where I'll remember somebody. Um, but they're all they're all success stories, I guess, you know, and the whole place is just soaked with people who uh, discover that they're exactly what God had in mind when God made them. So, so, and then they become that truth, they inhabit that truth, and they become the sanctuary that they sought. And then they go home and they present this sanctuary to their kids, and suddenly you've broken a cycle, which is the story of every single person here. But they've all had to carry more than I've ever had to carry as a human being. You know, yesterday we had a, we had a guy who, uh, you know, I've known for a long time. And I don't know, maybe he stopped taking his meds or maybe he relapsed and was smoking meth, but he got violent, you know, which doesn't happen very often. And yet, you know, we have 500 people here. Everybody's been to prison and and we only deal with serious, violent offenders remarkably we never have any incident and and he kind of he just kind of snapped so when i was walking him after we kind of calmed him down i and he was trying to get out of here without seeing me and i saw him leave and i and i knew all about it because everybody had told me so i uh, shouted him down hey miguel and he turned around huge huge hulking guy who just collapsed in my arms and sobbed, sobbed, sobbed. And that's because he's a man who's carrying real anguish, real mental torment, real mental illness that he never chose. It chose him. And occasionally something will trigger him, or, and it was one of those days, you know. How big is Homeboy Industries? How and is it only in Los Angeles? Does it have different divisions? Does it? What does it sell? I mean, tell us about Homeboy Industries. Well, um, I'm sitting in my headquarters at the moment, and and this is kind of the hub. We have ten social enterprises, lots of restaurants, electronic recycling, bakery, and so thousands and thousands of gang members walk through our doors every year wanting to reimagine their life and redirect their lives. So um, we were only in Los Angeles, but we have what we call the global homeboy network. So we've helped start programs all over the country and the world, 350 programs in the United States and 50 programs outside who are part of what we call our network. Our, and we gather every August and we, um, try to share our methodology and and when we gather people bring kind of their stories of and we share best practices and all that kind of stuff so rather than airlift homeboy into wichita we helped for example wichita to set up a program they call the central cafe 
again, it's most places kind of start with a social enterprise like we have. And but sometimes, you know, it, it all began places who had gang issues would come and and wanted to be part of our network. And, but now, you know, any social dilemma from mental health issues to homelessness to um, disaffected youth, they're all using our kind of way of proceeding as a way to address those social complex dilemma. Yeah, well, let me share some stories with you and get your reaction. See if you think, you know, some of my observations are correct or off base or maybe who knows. When I was in Georgetown, I was in a program called Law Students in Court. I was only maybe 22, 23. And I went into the very bad neighborhoods, bad in the sense that people call them bad. They're not bad inherently in Washington, D.C. And I was mostly representing women. They were mostly raising their kids alone. A lot of their husbands were either dead or in jail, which was an education for me. I was born in Queens, New York, very lower middle class, but not had never really seen this type of poverty, abject poverty. And when I met them in their homes, the windows were shot out. There was uh, no lighting. There was no air conditioning or heat. And when I talked to this one woman, she showed up. She'd been raped twice the night before. She talked about it the way, you know, friends of mine who are in law school in Georgetown and living in Bethesda or Alexandria or Potomac would talk about getting bit by a mosquito. It was just part of life. And as I, I asked for more and more of those cases and went in more and more mornings because I really was trying to understand how this could be going on, even though I was aware of it, but what caused it and what, you know, what was going on. And then flash forward. Uh, so it's always bothered me. It's been eating at me. I've been thinking, wow, wait a second. I'm a there, but the grace of God, I'd be in that, you know, inner city. And I, you know, and, and I often hear from politicians or from lawyers or some people who I think really don't know what they're talking about. Those people are fated to be that way. And I will stand up and rail against it. I got season tickets. I, I live in New York and LA and I got season tickets to Yankee stadium. And I, the people who serve food lead in the Bronx, live in the Bronx and I'm vegan. So I, you know, they were telling me their health conditions and I brought books for all of them. And I gave them these books called Forks Over Knives. And I went back the next year and they're all healthy. They all got off their diabetes and they're all got off of their high blood pressure medicine. And I said, guys, you look great. You know, all their health issues that when I'd ask them how them and their family are doing, they would tell me we're healed. They actually all cooked and got the healthy food and ate it. Now, I've often heard from people, well, you know, you can't go in and give those people healthy food. That's just a godforsaken place. And I'm campaigning against that as a, as a soul, just a soul who says, these human beings are really nice people who happen to have had a circumstance that most human beings can't even relate to that drove them into a dark path, but that if you give them opportunity or shine light on them, a book that teaches them how to eat well or show them uh, compassion, as you say, or cherish them, they can and will show they are just as good as you and anyone else who's trying to judge them. Do you agree with that? Oh, yeah. I mean, not all choices are created equal. So, you know, things are, I mean, I was born in the gang capital of the world, but I won every imaginable lottery, you know, parent lottery, education lottery, zip code lottery. 
And so the narrative that says, uh, I, you know, I never joined a gang. Well, it was preposterous, partly because of white privilege and that I wasn't anywhere in the vicinity of such a thing. So the degree of difficulty is high for people who live in the community that you just described. And so how can we get to a place where we stand in awe at what the poor have to carry rather than stand in judgment at how they carry it? So that's the point. Uh, I just wish and I pray, I do pray, the government and people would make it a higher priority. My son, Jacob, who went to Loyola High School, came home one day very upset because he was at a food kitchen and a gas truck pulled up and it um, spilled gas all the way down the street. Very bad part of um, uh, Compton. Now, if that happened in any neighborhood I lived in, there'd be police cars and they'd clean that up in probably two hours and clean it up with hazmat suits and make sure everyone was calm. Jacob came home every day for three weeks and said, Dad, the gasoline's still in the street. I try to educate people who just kind of want to do this to the inner city about what life is like there. And I said to Jacob, that's because that's how we treat those people. We, we, collectively, we, where, you know, why isn't there a cleanup of that gas bill in Compton? So, you know, what is the virtue for the person who is in a gang? Why do they join gangs? I have my own theories of that, but why do they join gangs? Well, you know, no kid is seeking anything when he joins a gang. He's fleeing something. So, you know, address the stuff he's fleeing. So there's only three profiles, you know, of, of a kid who joins a gang. There's the despondent kid who can't imagine tomorrow. There's the hugely traumatized kid who can't transform his pain, so he keeps transmitting it. And there's the mentally ill kid. So it's there are only three profiles. There aren't eight, and there aren't five. There are only three. And they're on a continuum of severity. Some kids are more despondent than mentally ill, and some are more traumatized than despondent. And so if we knew that to be the case, we would infuse hope to kids for whom hope is foreign, and we'd help heal the damaged, and we'd deliver mental health services. But there's a lot of mythic notions, the things like, you know, kid joins a gang to... Uh, to be safe or for protection. These are all mythic things or, you know, part of it comes when we're listening to gang members and if they're strangers to themselves, they'll say, wine, women and song, join a gang and see the world. That's not why they joined one, but that's why they will tell you they did. I remember a reporter once said to me, uh, you know, we know that kids join gangs to belong. And I said, no. And she said, everybody knows that, you know, like, and I go, well, no, everybody says that. It doesn't mean it's true. You join a little league. A kid joins little league to belong, but a kid joins a gang because he wants to die. And there are no exceptions to that. Now, it's hard to talk about that way. I, I you know, for a kid to say, I joined a gang because my mom used to torture me and put cigarettes out on me and hold my head in the toilet till I nearly drowned. Well, that's why he joined a gang. But that's too hard to say. So he's going to say, uh, you know, I joined a gang to see the world, wine, women, and song. 
but that's not true, but that's what he'll say. Now, did you ever meet or get to know Nipsey Hussle? No, I never I never did, no. Yeah, he, he was working very hard to bring a better community into Compton and Inglewood and to work with the gangs to try to, you know, bring businesses into that part of the city. Do you have any impressions as to why we don't see better education, better food, Whole Foods, Trader Joe's is not in the inner city. You know, education is horrible in Compton and Inglewood, unless you go to a proper place. The housing's horrible. Why is not this great country that does so much for any other country or for even immigrants coming over the border, which I applaud, why are we not doing more in the inner city, corporate America, political America, rich America? Why don't we do more? Well, I mean, we need to shrink the wealth gap, you know, to begin with. And uh, I don't know why we don't do more, frankly. I mean, part of it is we don't know people. And the answer always is to put yourself in the vicinity of folks on the margins. And that's where the joy is, is at the margins. If people knew that, they'd inch their way out there. And once you can put a human face on folks who live in areas that are poor, then it, it's a game changer. Then, you know, people are going to, you know, want to do things differently, you know? Yeah. I don't believe, by the way, Father Greg, that a human being in their soul as they were created was intended to show bias or judge a person based on their skin color. I don't believe that at all. I'll share a story with you that supports that. I was in New Orleans. My daughter moved to Ferret, which is was originally a pure black neighborhood, to do social work and work for a tech company. And big New York money has come in and moved out most of the people who live there. And uh, there was still people left, and they were having a block party. I was the, you know, I walked over because my daughter was taking a nap. She was pregnant. And I walked straight in, you know, only white person among a very black group, but they had a great band, and I represent and I started my career and got my boost from people who were artists like Ron Isley and uh, MC Hammer, and I, I could go on, I, I, and rappers. I hang around with uh, a lot of people who happen to be a darker skin than me. I have also friends from South America, and they happen to have darker skin than me. It means nothing to me whatsoever. Beautiful people, and I've gotten to know them in a beautiful way. And they explained how they were being displaced and how all these new establishments were coming in and their neighborhood was being changed in a way that made them uncomfortable. And uh, that the millennials, as much as they talk about how they want to you know, change the gap and be more understanding of different cultures, that they literally, and the guy pointed out and said, watch, all the young white kids would walk around like as though they had some disease 20 feet away with their dogs. And I try, look, I'm having you on because I want to understand. Like, I personally believe that every single person born on this earth is equal. And when they die, you know, and I don't judge other people in their faith because it's not my place. In my own religion, that's for God to do, not me. You know, I just want to be as good as I can to anybody else that I see and be as kind as I can. But I believe that human beings are not born, you know, they might have a circumstance that gives them the impression that they're in a better place than someone else, but that's hogwash. 
But do you have anything to say about, you know, what a lot of people talk about, which is the relations between the races? I get very upset that mankind is at a point where someone's skin pigmentation becomes important to them. I think it's, you can be, you know, proud of your culture, which is different than judging a person on sexual orientation, skin pigmentation, religion. What are your thoughts on that? I think everything is about something else. So um, when a man assaults an elderly Asian woman on the streets of San Francisco, I don't think Asian hate crime. I think mental torment, anguish, and illness. So how do we help this person? So my principles are two solid ones. One is we belong to each other. And two, everybody's unshakably good. And so moralism has never kept us moral. It's just kept us from each other. And things mean stuff. You know, you know I'm going to address head on whatever it is, anti-Semitism or Asian hate crime or racism even. But the truth is healthy people can acknowledge that all human beings, all men and women are created equal. If you're somebody who doesn't believe that, it doesn't mean you're a bad person. It just means you're not whole yet. You're not healthy. You're not well. You're not integrated. You remain a stranger to yourself, but not forever. How do we love each other into wholeness? But the minute it becomes about high moral distance, you know, I'm against hate crime and I'm going to what? That's how we don't make any progress because the diagnosis is really bad. So the presumption of the guy who assaults the aged, aged um, Asian woman in the streets of San Francisco, what is our starting point? That everybody's a rational actor coming from a healthy place. No, that's not a good starting point. And no healthy person in the history of the world has ever assaulted an Asian elderly woman on the streets of San Francisco, period. So if that's true, but that's where our moral outrage comes from, and yet we ought not to settle for moral outrage. We should hold out for moral compass. And if you're morally outraged, then you just sort of, it's us versus them. But if you have a moral compass, then it's just us. And how do we help people who are behaving horribly, (laughs) you know, because Otherwise, that's why we don't make progress. It's it's all about, and part of the mythic narrative is that we are going to address this head on. I go, good luck with that. Because racism is always about something else. It's not about some moral defect. It's about whole people don't beat down a man wearing a yarmulke in Times Square. Sorry, and, but but if you if you're gonna want to address anti-Semitism head on, good luck, you know because nobody whole or healthy is an anti-Semite. Nobody's ever met an anti-Semite who was healthy. It's not about hate. It's like, come on, we could really make progress if our diagnosis was right. How I mean, look at I me? Mean, maybe this is naive of me, but. I start a lot of my shows by telling people if they're out there and they feel lonely and they don't feel they're important, that they're loved, that we love them, that I care about them. I want them to love themselves. You know, I believe in compassion. I think compassion goes a long way towards, you know, good listening, understanding, caring, 
understanding, as you say, that we're all one. How effective is compassion? Well, I mean, compassion is who God is, you know. It's about understanding love. It's about getting under, if the homies here will talk about, you know, you, you need to find the thorn underneath, you know. So yesterday, you know, when the guy kind of had a meltdown, nobody said off with his head, be gone, you know. No, everybody knew it was a language. What language was did that outburst speak? What's it mean? What's it point to? What is it indicating? Then you can really do something. But compassion understands. And and the opposite of that is judgment. That kind of judgment wants to draw the lines, but compassion wants to erase them. So I never thought Donald Trump was a bad man, but I think he's mentally ill. And because of that, I, I only had compassion for him. I think he was uh, unfit to be president, but but I had compassion. You know, this is not a healthy human being. And I don't mean that as a, some kind of judgment that says he's a bad person. I, don't, I think he's as unshakably good as anybody. But he can't see his goodness because he's mentally ill. I don't think that's a political thing. I really don't. I don't think it's a partisan thing. But part of the problem in this country is people can't recognize illness when they see it. You know, uh, Matthew Dowd, I think, was suggesting that one-third of the country does not believe that all men and women are created equal. And I think he's probably right. But what does that mean? Who are those people? If they're the other, count me out. They belong to us. If they're bad people, count me out. They're obviously as unshakably good as anybody. But you could not make the case that those people are healthy or whole or well which means they're worthy of our compassion. How do we love them into wholeness? How do we extend ourselves to them with compassion and say, but if it's just drawing lines, I'm not interested. Only because our God doesn't draw lines. No, he doesn't. Well, Father, I feel honored, and I will tell you, you know, your spirit is touching me today, and you probably touch thousands upon thousands. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, you want to buy these books and read them on Amazon if you can afford to. But, you know, I love the statement that, you know, compassion doesn't draw lines. And I hope that people listen to this. I do believe very strongly, as strongly as I can believe anything in my life, that if you really want to make a difference in this world, you will bring compassion into the inner cities. I think if you want to be proud of where your country is, you cannot have these huge gaps between the way one side of society lives and the other. You know, I don't have any problem with economic success, but with that comes the responsibility to care deeply and be compassionate for others. And Father, I just want to tell you that you've made my week, my month, you inspire me. You're a doer, you're not a sayer. And by the way, you walk, you live the way. And you know what I'm talking about. You live the way. Thank you very much. Honor to be with you. And I'm honored to be with you, sir. And just keep on living the way. All right? Bye-bye.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>